I would I would pay money to have Harlan Elston yell at me. I did it for free. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. Back this week is the man himself, the Cecil. Yeah, apparently me and Josh are fighting. He's <laughs> off the show for a couple of weeks, and it's like, oh my god, are you two okay? Did Cecil leave the show? No, he had a few things to do. Jesus. Yeah, we we switched we switched days, we uh, recording days, and it just so happened that I already had some stuff lined up because it is the summer, and I had to take a, a few weeks off. Yeah, it's it's all good, everything's fine. I mean, I don't, I still don't like Josh, but I'll be. <laughs> Well, that's fine. I don't like Josh either. He's kind of a jerk. (laughs) He is kind of a jerk. But then Peter's not here this week, and we don't know why he was supposed to be, so I'm going to wager he overslept. Is that probably what happened, you think? I think so, most likely. So, no Peter this week, but if you guys want to help out the show, go and buy something from adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. This week, we're going to talk about why bugfuck is a way of life. We lost Harlan Ellison this week. I know you're a big Harlan Ellison fan. What did you think when you heard that he died? Now, because to me, going to be coming very soon. If you've seen him in any of his YouTube videos or appearances in the last few years, he's really has not, had not been in good health. I mean, he was all skinny and gaunt, and he didn't look, he didn't even have the energy old Harlan Ellison did, you know? I don't remember how long ago. It's probably, it's probably been at least a year or two now, but I did uh, my video on uh, a boy and his dog, and um, in the video, they had interviews with, with Harlan and with the director, and uh, back then, you could kind of see that, like, he was, uh, he had, he's older. You know, and so was that 84. was when I was, yeah, well, I'm, I mean, in those videos, I don't know how old he was, but I know he was, he was at least in his seventies and he just, you know, he was not the guy with the dark hair and just kind of sitting there with that sneer, you know, just like letting somebody have it. You could tell that like he, uh, he was a little more, he, he was, the Harlan was still there, but he was, he mellowed out. So that was kind of when I was like, all right, he's definitely getting up there. Uh, you know, I mean, it's perfectly natural natural and normal but um then like you said i I saw a couple of uh pictures of him more recently uh i'd say like six months ago or so and i was like oh god yeah like he's really looking old i didn't know you know his status of health but when i heard that he died i was very sad i was like oh god but it was not like a big surprise it was not like when you hear like jonathan brandis dies it's like oh my god you know he was like what 20 when he died or something and so i mean that's something like like out of you know like oh my god what but like harlan ellison you're like okay he died it's a terrible tragedy it's a shame but the dude was already in his 80s and it's not like as shocking two heart attacks and a stroke so things were not looking good yeah that'll definitely do it to you i'm surprised at his at his level of just agitation i'm surprised it was only two 
we're going to look at the man's career because of all, and I'm not even going to call him a science fiction writer, which of course he hated. And, you know, he would sue me probably because he likes to sue people if he were still <laughs> alive for that. He was, his writing influenced so much of television, of movies, of the science fiction field, of the mystery field, of the horror field. Even if you don't like Harlan Ellison, because, you know, he was a very abrasive personality. He was very in your face. He was very willing to start a fight over the smallest things. His talent will live on. His legacy will live on. I mean, you, you've you read his stuff. His stuff is influenced, I mean, not just the stuff that stole from him, like James Cameron, but my God, has his work, he laid the groundwork that so many others followed him. Yeah, he he was just brilliant. The The thing is, he there are a lot of writers and directors and whatnot out there that will talk about themselves like they're, you know, these, oh, I'm so, and you look at their stuff and you're like, this is like any Anybody could do this. Whereas he was abrasive. He was arrogant, but he had the talent to back it up. You could never like there were a couple people that were like, oh, this stuff sucked. No, it didn't. You may not like it, but you, when you look at the the laundry list of stuff that he's come out and the ridiculous amount of people that have been influenced by him and the TV shows and the movies and the books and the everything that has been influenced by him, you can't say that the guy sucks. The guy may have been uh, a jerk. The guy may have been abrasive. But a lot of times when he was being a jerk and abrasive, wasn't necessarily wrong. I know that firsthand. Back when I was a stupid teenager, I wrote some stuff and sent it to him and i got a very angry phone call from him and i deserved it i was being an idiot i deserved him screaming at me so i i've, I've actually spoken to him on the phone well spoken's not the right word he yelled at me and i was like i'm sorry i'm sorry so i don't know if that's a i've spoken to him i would i would pay money to have harlan Nelson yell at me i did it for free you did it for free i didn't know this was a, a thing this was like a, a 976 line back in the day no i i, I called know, to have harlan Nelson yell at you I, I i was a stupid teenager i didn't know the quote rules you know so i wrote some stuff and i sent it to him like you know i'd really like your thoughts on this and you know the the rules are basically a writer like that can't read any of this stuff because then even if he had no idea you were writing something like this if he's got something similar you could always claim you you know he stole that from you i know i'm like 17 i don't fucking know i don't know how this works this is the early 1990s and he called me up and reamed me for it and he was right i was wrong well, I don't I, blame him. Thing. You le you learned a valuable lesson. Let's look at his his media career. Let's let's leave the books out of it for right now. I mean, obviously they're going to come back in his comic books, his essays, and all that. He started his media career in television back in the 1960s with episodes for Route 66, Ripcord, Burke's Law. There's the famous Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episode. He was so angry at how it turned out that not only did he take his name off of it, so it's Cordwain or Bird who wrote the episode. He he lunged across the table at an executive, slipped on some papers, the executive tripped and ended up breaking his ribs. What was the one uh, where he tried to throw the guy out the window? That was th th that was also for Irwin Allen, but that was for something that didn't actually get made. This is when he first started to work for Ir <laughs> Irwin Allen's company. The he was pitching some ideas, and they the executive said something along the lines of, "Well, what do you want to do?" And you know, he pitched some ideas. They threw him a copy of like Amazing Stories or Startling Stories or you know Asimov Science Fiction or you know one of those 
those science fiction magazines, and they said, just pick one of these and, you know, write, write that. He said, you're going to be able to get the rights? And they go, no, dummy, we'll change just enough to not get sued. Oh. And, yeah. and why, you know how he felt about copyright, you know, multiple mm-hmm. lawsuits. So, wow, did that set him off. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's true. It's, it's a shame. There are so many things nowadays where they will change just enough to, to not get sued. Asylum. And- the asylum still gets sued too. They do still get sued, but the thing is, they're they're not. That's kind of a different animal. Like they're not trying to make something good and rip it off. They're just kind of ta- they're t- the asylum to me is is essentially you know modern day exploitation. They're taking uh, transformers and they're making transmorphers. You know, I'm talking like somebody who will like change just enough of something, but will still put you know twenty million dollars into uh whatever the project is so instead of paying the writer who came up with the idea you know x amount to make their own thing they'll just you know pay some schlub 20 bucks to like alter it enough so they don't get into trouble and that's where a lot of harlan's anger uh well not a lot but a good bit of his anger came from because he saw how authors and writers were always getting screwed well and then we come to the his two outer limits episodes in 1964 which yeah I know we bring this up a lot, but James Cameron straight up stole these for the Terminator. He did. I mean, you tell me, Cecil, if you can watch Demon with a Glass Hand or The Soldier and not immediately see. I mean, hell, the, okay, the term, Terminator opens on a war-torn battlefield with laser blasts in the distance and a destroyed tree while robotic, they're human, but robotic style soldiers come marching into the foreground. That's the exact opening of the soldier, man. I mean, he even stole the opening freaking shot, and he's like, I didn't steal nothing. Well, I mean, it's, you know, if he admits, then he's he's liable. So, I mean, uh, it really hurts because I adore the Terminator, but it, it's like, you know, you you can't you can't not look at it and say, yeah, that was that was lifted. Did you ever see his Alfred Hitchcock episode, which is weirdly enough a true story? Uh, I don't know if I ever saw his uh, Hitchcock episode. It was called Memo from Purgatory, based on his book Memos from Purgatory, which is basically about the time he ran with a gang in Red Hook, and James Kahn plays basically Harlan Ellison, and it's got an early Walter Koenig appearance as well, pre-Star Trek. But no, James Kahn basically plays Harlan Ellison in that. I'll have to look it up. I never saw that one. But then he decided, feature films are calling. 1966 The Oscar, which he says is one of the worst films in history. <laughs> and he wrote it. Now, you know, Harlan's very protective of his words. He threatened. And I'm going to use that word. He didn't ask. He threatened the director. You don't change a single word of my screenplay without asking me. Well, the director did it. I remember seeing the Oscar once, probably before I even knew Harlan wrote it. It's kind of a disaster. It's it's a terrible movie. It really is. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, that's one I haven't seen. Well, then he did two Man from Uncles. And then he did Star Trek. City on the Edge of Forever. He hates the version that made it on the air. It's still a fantastic version. I've read the City on the Edge of Forever screenplays. They collected all the different revisions into a book. I do agree his original his original version is better. But I also kind of got to go with Gene Roddenberry. There are things in his script classic Star Trek would not have had the budget for. I hate to say this, Cecil. I actually agree it did need a rewrite. It should have been Ellison that rewrote it, but his script was too expensive. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing with with comic books and, you know, writers and stuff. It's when you're when you're writing stuff, it can be anything, uh, you know, when you're drawing things, as long as they have the time now, you know, if they want to make a million starships or something, you know, it's going to increase the time that the person's doing it. But it's going to cost infinitely less than going into filming something and having to have all of these things or some spectacular event that uh, would just cost an astronomical amount of money to film. So I think that that's a case of where, you know, it's split down the middle. I agree with you. You know, they it deserved a rewrite, but it should have been rewritten by him. But it's still a landmark episode and just proves the the strength of his writing. There was there's actually there's one thing that I'm actually very, very angry was cut out of even the rewritten script. Because, you know, Kirk and Spock are back in time looking for McCoy. You know, everything that they do affects the future. That's the whole point of Edith Keeler must die, right? Mm -hmm. Because Bones accidentally saves Edith Keeler, who keeps America out of World War II, which allows Hitler to win World War II, which means the Federation never gets to exist, so Starfleet never exists. So if Edith Keeler has to die to protect history. At one point, when Bones first gets there, before Kirk and Spock go back, in the script, there was a homeless man who found McCoy's phaser and zaps himself and obliterates himself and nothing changes. And the point of that was this man is so inconsequential, his life and death had no meaning to the universe. And I thought, that's actually pretty weighty, man. Yeah, that's but they completely really cut heavy. That, they, they completely cut that out. And it's like, that's actually pretty cool for 60s television well i mean shrek in general it get you know i mean people will will mock it but these are usually really dumb people like they don't see all the different uh you know socio-political angles that they went with all of the i mean the the show was groundbreaking on so many different levels and that's why it's hilarious when there are people uh now that are yelling at william shatner online you know about how he's not progressive and whatnot and he's like i was part of the first interracial kiss on television back in the 1960s like you know how are you telling me that i am not progressive it's it's and he fought for that kiss too yeah he he fought for it he like because they wanted that they always do like the thing where they'll they'll shoot like one for safety and like so he kept they kept botching the one for safety you know which was something else to and finally they just didn't have enough time so they they were stuck you know they had the uh the kiss they had to use it and uh yeah and he fought to make sure that was in there and uh yeah it's it's hilarious that uh trek had a lot of good beyond just uh the sci-fi angle i mean there was a lot of morality lessons it was but it didn't beat you over the head with it like the new star trek it actually told you a story and you were able to kind of make of it what you would instead of just like oh here's this is good this is bad you know and that's all a testament to how good the writers were and, and ellison had problems with shatner he, he he and shatner did not get along at all he said when shatner first read the original draft of city on the edge of forever that and Leonard Nimoy is back to this up, so this is not just Harlan Ellison thinking Shatner is an egotistical jerk. Shatner line-counted, and he found that Spock had three more lines of dialogue than Kirk did and forced a rewrite, saying, I'm the star, he's the also-star. Well, you know, it's that's the problem of getting two alphas together. You know, they're, they're going to butt heads. 
Then there was the Cimarron Strip. Did you ever see the Cimarron Strip? It was a Western? No. Ellison came up with a great idea, and he has a great story about how the director of this epi- of his episode, Knife in the Darkness, is a complete incompetent. The episode was, because, you know, this is the early days of Cowboys and stuff where it takes place. He thought, what if Jack the Ripper decided to come to New Digs, that he didn't get caught or die in England, but he came to America, and there's this whole new area to start ripping. What if Jack the Ripper started ripping on the Cimarron Strip in the Old West? And I'm, first of all, that's a great idea. Yeah. The way he wrote his screenplay was like the opening scene, you know, the opening teaser before the credits, was going to be the Ripper stalking a woman at night. Everything was shot in misdirection, shot in the reflection of an owl's eyes, reflection of a puddle in a window and whatnot. He wanted to make it, even though slasher movies didn't exist, he wanted to avoid what we would later think of slasher movie tropes. And the director outright said, I'm not going to have a writer tell me how to make my episode. And so he directed it basically like Jason Voorhees to the point where like she fell down at one point. She's running, he's walking, and he appears in front of her. And Ellison was so mad he tried to take his name off the episode. He said the director just completely screwed this thing up from day one. And he wanted no part of having his name on this travesty that aired. See, that's ridiculous. Like what, what it drives me nuts when you're, when you're a director, one of the best things you can do is work with the writer. Now, unless the writer is like a complete incompetent like yeah but then why did you sign on to do the project to begin with the thing with ellison is he he does what's called directing on paper he will actually lay out camera angles and shots, length of shots, and things. So he basically directs it in the script. A lot of directors see that as, then why am I even here? I'm just a glorified cameraman. So they resent writers that direct on paper. Oh, absolutely. I can That I can understand. But the thing is, I think, especially with somebody like that, you need to work out a compromise. Okay, well, look, uh, you know, why don't we try it this way? Or, and I could see trying to compromise with, with Harlan would probably not be the easiest thing in the world. But then again... Uh, some of the best things that have been ever made have not been easy to do. I bet you forgot that Harlan Ellison wrote a Flying Nun episode. <laughs> Your laugh indicates you did. Yeah, that, oh boy. Well, I, okay, I should say Harlan Ellison didn't. Cordwainer Bird did. Ah, uh, pseudonym. And he literally did it because at the time, he admits in the glass teat, his book, he did it literally just to meet Sally Field. He was so infatuated with her, he took the job just so he could show up on set one day and meet her. Wow. Gidget? Sheesh. <laughs> uh, now, see, he... I've only, I've only ever known Sally Field as an older lady. So, like, going back and seeing, like, you know, I'm always Smokey like, Smokey oh, and the Bandit, man. That's the thing. Going back and seeing, like, Smokey and the Bandit, I'm like, okay, I could see how she was kind of cute back then, but, like, still, really? Like, like <laughs> people made a, a big deal. You know, I always just see her as the, you love me, you really love me. You know, like. Just, uh, so yeah, I never, uh, I, I never quite understood the Sally Field thing. Well, and then he, he did an episode of The Young Lawyers, he wrote an episode of Circle of Fear, and then there was the famous The Star Lost series that Cordwainer Bird created. This was supposed to be, he was told this was going to be a BBC series, it was going to have a big budget, there was going to be big stars, he was going to create it, blah blah blah. He found out the producers didn't know what they were talking about. It actually was produced in Canada for the CBC. The entire show was shot on videotape to save money, so it looks like old soap operas, quality-wise. The bulk of the show they couldn't afford sets, so it's mostly blue-screened. 
He just took his name off of it. He was like, this is a fucking disaster. What's funny is his script for the pilot episode, Phoenix Without Ashes, won a Writers Guild Award. What actually aired is considered one of the worst TV pilots ever on television. If you've never seen Star Lost, it's painfully bad. Just to think Ellison was even involved in this in some level is shocking. It's so bad. And then there's a boy and his dog. In in a way, this is Harlan Ellison's movie, and in a way, it's not. Because L.Q. Jones had to write most of it, because, as you pointed out in your video, Ellison had writer's block for the first time in his life, and he just, I think he got 13, the first 13 pages, and then the rest is all L.Q. Jones. This is a movie, I just recently showed this to my girlfriend, ironically enough, a week before Ellison died. She didn't know what to make of it. She was like, this is so f***ed up, but it's also really good, too. It's... A Boy and His Dog is almost an unclassifiable film, isn't it? In a weird way. It really is. It's it's very bizarre with the ways that, especially when it has the massive tonal shift of when he goes into the underground, it uh, it just gets, like, really crazy. And, I mean, the, the hero is not a hero. Uh, He's a rapist scumbag. He is, but it's just, but it's, it's just, I don't know, the whole thing, it works on the strength of the writing and on the strength of the acting and just how bizarre the whole thing is. And that, uh, that goddamn dog is so good. I'm not oh, the joking. Dog's phenomenal. I'm not kidding. Certain awards groups, you know, like the science fiction awards and whatnot, actually tried to come up with a way to nominate the dog for supporting actor. I, I, I know if you haven't seen the movie, this sounds like we're being stupid. That dog is fantastic in this movie. The dog is phenomenal. The dog is is another portion. I mean, the whole thing, it's such a, an amalgam of different things that all make it work. Any one of these things would have made a movie great, but you've got all of these different things coming together to make this movie completely uh, just on a whole other level it's it's something else and uh and i know harlan uh is not a fan of the lq final line in the film but i i love it i just it, it, I, it works for the, the the way i look at it is it works for the movie whereas the final line in the book is not the same and it works for the book the book's line wouldn't really have worked for the movie Absolutely. But it works for the book. And I think that's kind of what he was looking at. But I know he's kind of come to, he made peace with it because he had, he had spoken with uh, LQ and he's, he's like, I still don't like the, the ending, but I've kind of, you know, made my bones and, and, and just leaving it at that. And cause he's happy. Initially, he wasn't particularly happy with the movie, but uh, like over time, he came to see like what LQ was able to do and he did appreciate it. So it was nice that, you know, he did uh, finally see, oh, wait a minute, you know, this is really good. Also, the fact that A Boy and His Dog laid the groundwork for almost everything we think of as a post-apocalyptic movie. The look, the tone, the clothing. I mean, George Miller would have no career if it weren't for A Boy and His Dog, and he admits that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and and so many post-apocalyptic uh, Italian uh, exploitation films, just they, they looked at that. It was a combination of Boy and His Dog and Mad Max. And they just they went and made uh, made hundreds of these movies. 
but yeah, if not for that, there wouldn't be a, a Mad Max, and then there wouldn't be a post-apocalyptic genre, and I'd be very sad. Did you know that they were going to turn in 1977 a Boy Dog into a TV series? I do know that. Well, I haven't read the script. The story became, I think it was Egg Sucker. It became the one where Vic and Blood get separated. Vic gets uh, attacked and turned into basically a zombie by a giant spider and gives up life. Blood is forced to run away. He finds another solo, but a female named Spike, and he falls in with her... Vic ends up escaping from the spider and then comes up to and meets up with Blood and Spike, but now Blood is connected to both of them, and this is the way Ellison put it. It's a three-way love triangle between these two humans who hate one another who both love the dog and have to survive together. You know what? That would be a great series. Yeah, it really would, but, um, uh, God, how would they... How would they do it within the... T- I mean, they could probably do it today on, like, HBO or Netflix or something. Yeah, I don't but, know how uh, they could have done this on NBC. <laughs> yeah, I don't see it... Like, I see them kind of making it a little bit schlocky. Because, like, Star Trek was not an adult... I mean, uh, you know, adult quotes show. So they could do, uh, you know, Harlan's writing in that. But the the foundation of a boy and his dog is would would not fly on television so i don't know how they would be able to make that work i mean i would have liked for them to try uh just for the simple fact to see what the outcome might have been it might have been a a one season and done thing but i don't know i think uh, it would have been interesting but i think it absolutely could have worked and i do wonder now that he's passed you whoever his dog remake in the works right now Ah, oh, damn and it! I, I can't remember the director's name. Everything he's directed, I swear to God, are video games. He's a vi- he's literally a video game director, and he's directing the Boy and His Dog remake. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Well, the only possibility is there was a um an adaptation of uh, I have no mouth but I'm a scream that was made into an adventure game that was Ellison really... was the voice of the evil computer in that too right and I'm but it was terrific it's really good and so maybe if it's the guy who helmed that no it's who, not uh, it's a modern video game oh they're gonna make it PG-13 and he's not gonna be a rapist it's it's gonna be uh god who's a uh who's is gonna be Channing Tatum. David Lee Miller is is directing it. He has directed the video games Zooopolis, uh, Zoo Explorers, Bug Explorers, All Dogs Go to Heaven Activity Center. You really see how this guy's you know good for a boy and his dog, right? How the f- how did he <laughs> land? The- My God! Uh, oh. Oh, the industry sometimes. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see if it, if that even comes together. But, uh, yeah, that just sounds like it's going to be a gigantic de- a mess. Well, and then Ellison did an episode of the Logan's Run TV show. Totally forgettable. Now, he did not write for Tales from the Dark Side in 1985, but one of his stories was adapted. Did you ever read Gin No Chaser? Which I completely stole for the title of our Wishmaster episode, by the way. <laughs> I, I've read a lot of his short stories. I read a lot of his stuff. Uh, that one, I, I don't think I've read. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a, is, it's a comedy episode. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a genie trapped in a lamp and things don't go right and at the end they free him with a can opener. <laughs> I'm not kidding! Sounds great. And then Ellison was creative consultant and wrote many episodes of the 1985 Twilight Zone. They're really, really good. His firing from the Twilight Zone it could make a movie in and of itself. But he also 
co-directed the the grandma episode from Stephen King's story. Nearly strangled Wes Craven over the Shatter Day. Yeah, it was typical Ellison just in the eighties now. Yeah, I've I've seen his uh, his episodes and they were they were terrific. They were some of the best. Cordwainer Bird wrote, wrote two episodes for The Hunger, the TV series, the Showtime, I think it was Showtime, series in the in the 90s. Remember that? Was that the vampire one? Well, the TV series was an anthology show, so it, yeah, it was based off of The Hunger TV, you know, movie, but yeah. Right. They're, they're not always vampires. Okay. I, I don't, uh, I, I, I've seen a couple, I, I, if memory serves, so I'm not sure if I've seen his or not. Tony and Ridley Scott. Uh, directed episodes and produced the show. He did an episode of the Silver Surfer cartoon in 98. He was a creative consultant on Babylon 5, and he wrote two episodes of that turd of a show. That was my introduction to Harlan Ellison, was was Babylon 5, because I remember he they were they were talking about that, and he was being interviewed a lot because they were talking about how Star Trek Deep Space Nine, how he was saying how they, they ripped off a lot of his ideas that uh, he had taken for Babylon 5. So I, I remember because they were, he was on Sci-Fi Channel a lot back then yeah he, he, and, he had a he had a um he had a weekly segment on sci-fi buzz called harlan ellison's watching which is the same title as one of his non-fiction books of all his all of his movie reviews and yeah he was on every week and i loved that show i watched he did a lot you know for someone who hates the term sci-fi he worked for the sci-fi channel a lot he really did but that was the thing so i saw like a lot of it you know i saw babylon 5 i saw him on there and that was he was such an outspoken guy that that was what got me to check out his writing to check out boy and his dog to check out all this other stuff and to really just fall in love with the guy because i'm like like he is a, a character there's like there's nobody else like this guy out there uh and i and i don't think there ever will be another uh guy out like they're out there and see babylon 5 it's not because i like deep space 9 so much babylon 5 always bugged me for one their use of cg graphics at a time when cg graphics still looked like video games the cg in that show is just god awful but to me the worst thing about babylon 5 the story were fine. The characters were fine. The worst dialogue I've ever heard. There is, n- I've, I've, I've seen uh, the bulk of the show. Nothing sounds like it's not scripted. It sounds like the actors are reading lines. It, it, nothing in that show sounds like people talking. I mean, everybody sounds like they're reading dialogue. And I don't know why it bothers me so much and pulls me immediately out. Babylon 5 just feels like a really expensive stage play to me. I think some more than others, there's some actors where you're like, oh, God, they're they're just not doing good at all. And then other ones I'm cool with. But I agree with you on the, the CG. The CG at the time, it was kind of neat, but it's like it's so dated. Like It's so distracting. Go, distractingly dated i mean now the thing that kills me though is the alien designs were all practical for the most part and some of them are just incredible looking and then it goes to like the ships and you're like oh these look terrible exactly but but like i said to me the 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 dialogue was the worst thing and i'm like not just this is not how people talk that it sounds like the actors are reading their lines for the first time and they, they sound like actors reading when they talk on this show and it was like that for the whole series so it never got better so that's clearly what straczynski wanted and i'm like no i just i can't get into this 
I guess he wanted it very structured and I, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen it. So, but of course now I'm going to go back and, and I'm going to be like, God damn it, Josh, you ruined it. <laughs> Sorry. And then Ellison wrote two episodes of the nineties outer limits. I, I bet Cameron was tempted to steal from those too, but he just didn't. Well, at that point he was, he was too busy getting ready for Titanic. So he did a masters of science fiction. And in the meantime, he also in, in the, in the 1970s, he was a story editor on the sixth sense. Do you remember that one? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, most people, you know, it's a psychic show. Gary Collins was Dr. Michael Rhodes, and he would go around and find psychic phenomena and try to prove it existed and whatnot. And it lasted for 24 episodes. Here's the weird thing. Most people have never seen the full episodes, but they've seen The Sixth Sense without realizing that they did. See, because The Sixth Sense was was put into production right after Night Gallery was finished. Night Gallery was by, by Universal and shot on the Universal backlots. Sixth Sense had mostly the same crew and hell a lot of the same cast and shot on the same back lots using a lot of the same sets so six sense episodes visually looked like night gallery episodes so when night gallery was going into syndication they found they didn't have enough episodes to syndicate because you have to have a hundred episodes right they took six sense episodes cut them down to a half hour from an hour had rod serling do new intros for them which he said was he was paid an obscene amount of money they were released as part of the night Night Gallery package as Night Gallery episodes. So if you watch Night Gallery in syndication throughout the 70s or 80s or 90s, it just seemed like Gary Collins starred in every other Night Gallery episode. Those were actually Sixth Sense stories. Huh. What a weird I, way to do that, huh? Yeah, that is really something else. Uh, I did not know that. Let's talk about Ellison's other stuff, because what what uh, stories of his have you read? The ones I can think of, I have no mouth that I must scream, honestly. I I love Repent Harlequin Said the TikTok Man. You ever read that one? Uh, No, I mean, I did read uh, I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream because it's the title alone is just freaking awesome. And I read uh, the, you know, the comics from A Boy and His Dog, well as A Boy and His Dog, trying to think of what are some of the other ones I read because he's got so freaking many. I've I've read so much of his stuff. I just want to put this out there to the audience. His 1993 novella, Mephisto and Onyx, might just be the best story I've ever read in my entire life. No bullshit. I literally could not put this book down. When I got it, I was working at a hotel at the time. I, I had my shift started at 3 p.m. So I went to the library. I checked this out because this was a really expensive hardcover, so I couldn't afford to buy it. So I checked it out from the library, and I just thought, I'm going to read it for 15, 20 minutes. I called in sick that day so I could finish reading this book. <laughs> I almost couldn't put this down. Mephisto and Onyx, I had to know what happened next. Wow. All right. I'll have to, I'll have to get that one. You know, and then there are other ones, like even though it's like, I think it's only 10 or 13 pages, Broken Glass. Even though it would be required to have hardcore porn in it, it's it's intricate to the story. Broken Glass, I want to make into a short film. Broken Glass is a f***ing gut punch of a story. It's so unique, and it, it actually is one of those, and I'm not using, I'm not misusing this term, it speaks to the human condition and what it means to be human. I, I absolutely loved Broken Glass, but it does have hardcore pornography in it, and it is required for the story as well. It, it's actually not gratuitous hardcore porn. And I know how weird that might sound. I read uh, Rockabilly. Rockabilly's good. You ever read mm-hmm. uh, Paladin of the Lost Hour? No, I didn't read that one. I'm sure you saw the Twilight Zone of that one, though. Yeah, right? I think I'm pretty sure I saw the Twilight Zone of it. That Twilight Zone really 
if you listen to the commentary, that Twilight Zone is the episode that broke Harlan Ellison's heart. Even yeah. though he loves how it turned out, he because he idolized Danny Kay. He just mm. idolized him. When Danny Kay was in that, he said he saw how selfish and what a jerk Danny Kay was. Whenever it was a two-shot of Danny Kay and Glenn Turman, Danny would only turn in an okay performance. When it was a tight shot, when they were getting his coverage, he would turn in a fantastic performance. That way it would force them in editing to use the single shots of Danny instead of the dual shots with Danny and Glenn. And he's like, what an arrogant jerk. Yeah. That's... You know, that Danny was basically, I'm the star, you're the guest star. Remember your place, Glenn Turman. So he said that episode just broke his damn heart. But, I mean, Ellison also, you know, we got to point out, you and I love slasher movies. Wow, did he not. Did you see, like, the maybe five or six different essays he wrote between about 1981 and 1985, just lambasting and attacking what he called knife-kill movies? <laughs> he was all, he was almost on the level of Siskel and Ebert. He hated slasher movies, and he actually said slasher movies are going to destroy the fantasy genre. Well, in a way, they kind of did simply due to popularity. But, I mean, that's kind of the ebb and flow of the industry anyway. But uh, slasher movies became very popular, but never put fantasy movies completely away. It's just, uh, I mean, I, I know what he meant. But I, I think still... he meant more reputation-wise mm -hmm. than, like, you know, I because I, I, I remember his initial knife kill movie. I can't remember what the title was in Comics Journal when he was railing against Friday the 13th and Halloween and all that. And or I, Friday the 13th Part 2 had just come out because he did mention about uh, how he had an encounter over that movie. He said that these movies are going to turn everyone against the term horror movie, that you won't be able to make an actual horror movie anymore because of how bad the reputation these knife kill movies are giving that word. I think in general, I think he might have been looking into it uh, a little too. Well, I mean, he has a tendency to take things to the extreme. So I think no. that, <laughs> I know, right? It's crazy. But uh, I think that's kind of the, the, you know, he was he was going a little seeing that Hollywood was not going to uh, take other things seriously. And I mean, Hollywood does make a lot of dumb mistakes. And I think that he was seeing the way that things could potentially work out. But I think he was being a little too nutsy but i mean at, at the very least at least he didn't give the freaking addresses of the people that worked in the films like out so people could uh harass them about it we should also mention like with a Buena's dog or blood's a rover turned into a tv show or whatever he's got a lot of unproduced stuff out there i've never read this one he wrote an episode of the 60s batman that was considered too violent to film <laughs> <laughs> I really kind of want to see that. I want okay, okay, you know how they've been doing this a lot in the last few years, like taking unproduced screenplays or original version of screenplays, not just by Ellison, but he's had a couple of these, and making them into comic books, like six-issue comic books? I want to see his 60s Batman as a comic book. We'll, we'll never get it as a show. I want it as a comic book. I still want to know. I mean, it was considered too violent. Well, I mean, if you if you consider Batman at the time... Of course, that would be you know, too violent. You know, there wouldn't be Biff and Pal every every time somebody got hit. So I think that uh, it might have been considered too violent back then, but it probably would be relatively tame today. But I still would love to see it. I absolutely would love to see it. He wrote a TV movie called The Tigers Are Loose, based on the Richard Speck murders of the 1970s. That has never been. I've I've never found the script for this one. It only didn't get made because it, he didn't know this at the 
time, the head of the network, he had insulted at another network and was just not going to let this ever get made because Ellison's name on it. And he kept coming up with reasons like, oh, it's too violent. It's too violent. It's about a guy that committed a bunch of murders. How are there, there's going to be some violence in this damn thing. And he, and he said he met with the censor at ABC and found even the censor, the things they want to change, he, and I'm quoting here, were so minor that they could have been changed in a weekend. He said the censor came out of the office and said, this is an Emmy winner right here. And they would not make it because the head of the network was like, Ellison will not work here. No. His iRobot screenplay, I've read, that one got reprinted. I've read that one. He, I think this was like 87, 88 this one was trying to be made. Amazing. It was, now I admitted it, one of the reasons it didn't get made, it was, remember at this time they weren't, weren't throwing 50, 60 million dollars at a film. It probably would have been a 50 million dollar film. So I understand partially why it wasn't made. Man, his iRobot would have been fantastic. I saw that that existed and I was like, oh my God. Cause I didn't, I thought that the iRobot that came out was not a bad movie. I mean, uh, Prowl's. It wasn't a good movie either. Uh, I don't know. I thought he did a pretty good job with it. It wasn't. Oh, Will Smith was fine, but it just. Yeah, it could have been better, but it also could have been worse. And I think that's, I mean, it, it was a much more serious story that more or less was turned into like a very typical action film. And uh, I think they could have done more with it. But yeah, I'll have to track his uh, his iRobot down. So I'm sure it's brilliant. I know at one point, I've read the story. I, I read something at one point. Someone was going to try to turn, how is the nightlife on Secessia? I'm assuming I'm pronouncing the Secessia right. How is the nightlife on Secessia into an, an episode of an anthology show in the 80s? Oh man, would I have loved that. How is the nightlife on Secessia is such a funny story satirizing the constant desire for sex in america an astronaut comes down and he has an alien stuck on his penis and the (laughs) and the alien is completely giving him so much sexual pleasure that when they remove the alien he all he starts going through withdrawal from not having it sucking his dick so then the alien starts attacking other people and spawning eventually the entire planet male and female are all just stuck being mindless husks while the secessians are literally sucking them dry and this one astronaut has come out of it after going through withdrawals and he's the last man on earth while the rest of the planet is getting sucked having their dicks sucked or their pussies pumped to death and i'm like man that needs to be a freaking outer limits episode wow that's something and and his uh, hatred of Shatner even comes out in the story. At one point, uh, William Shatner specifically gets attacked, and the alien almost doesn't want to do it because of how distasteful Shatner is. <laughs> and then and then Shatner starts trying to ward it off with his wig. So yeah, Ellison didn't like Shatner. Uh, well, like I said, you get two alphas, you know, that that are going to come together. Of course, there's going to be buttonheads. I, I highly recommend Ellison's two collections, The Glass Teat and The Other Glass Teat, which are his essays on, uh, obviously it's 60s television, because that's what it was at the time, on television and why television is the worst thing to happen to mass media in terms of telling stories. I I agree and disagree. Well, basically he was saying that there's so much possibilities with television, and yet it's filled with doctor shows and cop shows and stupid moronic comedies, and anytime somebody tries something slightly intelligent, it's canceled after a few episodes. Oh, but Kojak's in its eighth season. Oh, I I completely agree with that. I mean, there's been countless shows that uh, have been fantastic that have been canceled almost immediately, uh, purposefully sabotaged and uh, disposed of. So uh, I think the... And I know you're... I know you're not a fan, 
but I think with the advent of uh, streaming with Amazon and Netflix and whatnot, I do think we're getting more story-driven shows because they want people to uh, to get attached to them. Whereas uh, with network television, it was just, hey, let's let's just do the same episode of CSI over and over and over again, and uh, people will keep watching. Uh, Ellison used to say, especially with cop shows, he really hated cop shows. And I, I like a lot of cop shows, you know, Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue. There, there's a lot of great cop shows out there. But he, he used to bring up like uh, Kojak or Columbo. And he said, you watch the first five minutes, you turn it off and you go do something meaningful like masturbate. And then you come back at the last five minutes and you've got the whole story. There's 10 minutes of story in this hour. You got the beginning and the end. Everything else is just filler between commercials. That's true. He, I was going to say, yeah, he's, he's not exactly wrong. No, they're, they're all, and I mean, and, and that continues going back to shows like CSI. It's, it's like there's the opening crime and then there's just filler, 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 filler. And then there's the big reveal at the end who, uh, the, the actual killer is. And it's, it's usually the famous guest star. In the old shows, it's usually the famous guest star in the new shows it's like the person who they just introduced five minutes ago well, not just that. I, I do still go as the famous guest star. Every time I would see a CSI or NCIS or some show like that, there would be, you know, maybe not famous, but like a Tim Matheson or something introduced early on. And you're like, he's the killer. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, Eric Roberts guest stars in this episode. I wonder who the killer is. Yeah, they have so much... Like, I mean, the shows do so well. They have so much room to kind of, like, mess with that. And yet they just keep doing the formula. Well, and then Ellison even brought in, he didn't write it, but he was brought in to write Star Trek The Motion Picture back in 79. The way he tells the story is he and Gene were in Paramount, some Paramount executive's office, the guy wanted bigger. He just kept saying it's got to be bigger than Star Wars, bigger than Star Wars. At one point, they blew up the entire universe. <laughs> and he goes, can you go bigger? And they looked at each other like, are you fucking kidding? Yeah. Like, how, how much bigger? With Ellison's passing, okay, I understand what's going to happen next. Because he laid down rules in his will. All of his unfinished works, his wife is to burn them. Because he doesn't want anyone pulling a Frank Herbert on him or a Rod Serling where somebody finds, you know, half-finished stories and then somebody else finishes them 30 years later. In a way, I'm kind of going, that sucks because I'd really like to read the stuff that maybe, I mean, even unfinished, I would still like to read what he had written. So we're probably never going to get to see any of that. Maybe there's still a couple of collections or short stories that just haven't come out yet that we might get. What do you think the legacy of Harlan is? is because i saw after he died a lot of people paid tribute to him all of the the road that he laid down basically nobody was able to also avoid the he was a real jerk in real life though too do you think that's always going to be part of his legacy is he was a contentious jerk i think so it's not so much that he was a, a jerk it's that he was a really outspoken jerk a lot of, I mean, the majority of the time when he was being a jerk, he was absolutely in the right. And I think that. Right, uh, but, but there are ways to finesse it. You, you know, that there, you don't have to say, hey, this story sucks. You could go, okay, here's how to improve this story I, I read. He would go, this sucks and just walk away. But that's not exactly cut constructive, you know? But, but there's something, there's something endearing about that to me in a way. It's that there's somebody 
who who is so just does not give a f- about what other people think about him and he knows his skills and abilities and he's just gonna basically be like look this is how it is but you know he's not gonna pussyfoot around he's not gonna baby talk to you he's gonna give you the blunt this sucks and i think that there are a lot of people and whatnot that probably could um deserve to hear that their stuff sucks and maybe not be coddled as much and uh, I, I agree with that but i also think ellison to a degree didn't understand because of by how easily he got into writing and whatnot i don't think he understood by the time like the 1980s rolled around the walls that had become built up like when he first met joe straczynski straczynski and you know some i've read some of these stories that have come out over the time and they were pretty good straczynski was like nobody's buying my stuff ellison said well, then stop writing crap. If it wasn't crap, it would sell. And Ellison said, and I'm, I'm not quoting exactly, but good works will always find a way out. You and I know that's not how this works. There are so many walls built up out there. It's more who you know and not the quality of the work. I think to a degree, Ellison was totally ignorant because his name opened every one of those doors for him by the 80s. When you don't have that name, nobody will even read your stuff. If it's good, it will find a publisher. That is, I think, total bullshit. I, I mean, it kind of comes along with the, uh, the saying, the cream will rise to the top. It's such a mixed bag. It is true that, uh, there have been a lot of walls, you know, been put up and there's a lot of just god awful stuff that gets published. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey, while some really amazing stuff just gets, you know, pushed aside, never published, never even, uh, you know, passed, uh, past the front door. I do think that there are things that are that are really amazing that uh, do finally, you know, maybe uh, it takes a while, but they do eventually get recognized. Uh, I think that uh, it's it's kind of a 50-50 thing. I agree that uh, the cream does rise to the top, but I also agree that there is a lot of shit out there that gets attention that uh, um, is taken as opposed to uh, other stuff that should be getting made. See, I'm not sure I agree with that. I've seen so many stories from so many now famous writers about how nobody would look at their stuff and they didn't have a name and it's who you know. And Ellison came up in a different time. When he started writing in the 1950s, the sci-fi magazines would take anybody's submission. Now, now try getting Asimov's science fiction or the magazine of fantasy and science fiction to even read your thing. You need three agents and a goddamn famous person to open the door for you before they'll even read it. It's a totally different world. And he was like, if it's not crap, it will sell. And I think that's garbage. He, he, he once said, there are no great unsold novels out there. And I'm like, you want a freaking bet? I know people who have fantastic stories out there. No one will touch. Why? They're not a name already. They don't have somebody to Donnie Brasco them into this industry. The industry has too many walls. Ellison, because he was able to leap over those walls on his first attempt, everybody else can do that too. It was a, it was a different time when he came up and um like i said i think that uh, it it's it's a both a true and a false statement so i i'll just kind of leave it at that it's it's harder and some would say impossible there are still amazing things that that just you know they that end up being ignored and finally they get the right person to look at them and it ends up happening and becomes a huge hit uh, time and persistence and uh, uh sometimes you get lucky. See, I, I disagree with that. But I think Ellison's legacy is going to be 
a brilliant, brilliant writer who never suffered fools lightly and probably shouldn't have. And I think he was always kind of stifled by the system because especially even with how good some of his TV work is, sometimes they've released the, his original screenplays. They're almost always better than what was shot. I think he was always sort of screwed by the system. I think TV was always a little scared of him. Well, he was, uh, he was beyond, you know, he was, he was so far ahead of where, uh, TV was at the time that, uh, I think that they just didn't really know how to, to, to deal with him. And then, uh, even it, it's kind of weird because if he was younger now, but had the same level of notoriety and whatnot, I still think a lot of his stuff wouldn't get made because now they would be trying to, uh, make it more commercial or make it more whatever. And it's just like, his stuff by by itself is already better than the majority of crap that's out there. You don't need to change it. I, I, I think now always giving the writer complete autonomy is not always a good thing as we've seen because it should be, I think it should be a collaboration. The director should have some input, but you don't have anything without the writer. Because, I mean, Ellison even admitted, like on Paladin of the Lost Hour, on the Twilight Zone, he he respected Philip DeGauer, the executive producer, who was forcing him. He talks in the commentary about how they forced him to change some things, and he hated the fact that he had to admit later they were right. Their versions were better than mine. And he said that pissed him off. Nobody likes to be told that, you know, realize that they were wrong about something. That's really all that comes down to. I know, but, but it takes somebody like Philip DeGauer to actually tell Harlan... Actually, it should be done like this. And he's like, F- you, I don't care that you're right. <laughs> what are your final thoughts on Ellison? Uh, I think that he is a brilliant writer. He is one of a kind and uh, there will never be another guy like him. There will never be somebody who is uh, as outspoken as he was or as talented as he was. And uh, I'm really sad. He, for all the accolades and for all of, all of the goodness that he's put out over the years and for how much, you know, we know who he is, I don't think he ever really got the massive success that he really deserved. I think that he got, he was very successful and I'm, you know, and lived comfortably and whatnot. But when you look at some writers and whatnot that uh, are just uh, are almost household names and the quality of their material is just not even close to his. So uh, I'm glad that we had him and I'm glad that there was a guy like him. I bet James Cameron was going when he died. Finally, I'm not going to get sued again, especially now that there's a new Terminator coming out. Where can people find Cecil reading Harlan Ellison stories in his underwear? In my pajamas, thank you very much. Do uh, they have the little feet? Uh, no, I don't have feety pajamas, but what am I? Oh, I'm just wearing some plaid ones today. But normally I'm wearing my Justice League pajamas. I am at uh, goodbadflicks.com as well as goodbadflicks on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, and Facebook, uh, as well as 1201beyond.com. I'm also at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, go read some Harlan Ellison stuff, Broken Glass and Mephisto and Onyx, especially, although Repent Harlequin the TikTok Man is amazing as well. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
fertile. Blessed is the grass and herb and the tree of thorn and light. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.